Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Matters podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at the origins of Christmas, how coronavirus has affected the fur trade, and also taking a mindful moment in nature and looking at this week's nature news. That's all with me, your host, Nigel Palmer. So let's waste no more time and get into the Christmas episode of the Wildlife Matters podcast. news today we're going to be looking at a new movie made by musician moby and it's called punk rock vegan movie it was created to shine a light on the surprising and inspiring history of punk rock and animal rights but also to remind people of the importance and desperate urgency of adopting the uncompromising ethics and actions of the original punk rock activists said moby After it makes its world premiere at Slamdance in November, it's yours. It's my goal to give away the movie, as I can't in good conscience try to profit from what is essentially a labour of love and activism, said Moby. The film, which is Moby's directorial debut, is a passionate and stylistically idiosyncratic look at the ongoing relationship between the worlds of punk rock and animal rights. And it includes interviews with some of the biggest names in punk and rock history, like Ian McKay, Dave Navarro, Ray Capo, Andrew Hurley, Amy Lee, and Captain Sensible. Moby tells the story of how punk rock became such a fertile and surprising breeding ground for vegan activism. It's also a call to action, unapologetically reminding people that in a deeply broken world, it's incumbent upon each of us to stand up and fight intelligently, passionately and loudly against injustice. And in the spirit of punk rock, this film will be free to view following the release at the Slamdance premiere. We're unsure yet as what networks it's going to be available on, but it is believed to be available on the internet from early 2023. So vegan or a punk rocker, and uh, I fit both categories, then this is going to be a must watch for you. So do watch out for Moby's The Punk Rock Vegan Movie coming to your screens in early 2023. That's been today's nature news from the Wildlife Matters podcast. So on today's Have Your Say on the Wildlife Matters podcast, we're going to be looking at how coronavirus has effectively killed the fur trade. According to a 2016 report released by a Chinese Academy of Engineering, 75% of China's wildlife trade is dominated by fur production, with animals farmed for their fur such as raccoon dogs, foxes and mink often ending up at wildlife wet markets. Transmission of the coronavirus from mink to humans and mutations related to mink were first documented in the Netherlands, which prompted the government there to bring forward a ban on mink farming, scheduled originally to go into effect in 2024. 
After the discovery in the Netherlands, the authorities in Denmark initiated a large-scale surveillance program of all mink farms in the country with regular testing and genomic sequencing. The US Department of Agriculture confirmed that cases of mink sick with COVID-19 had been documented in Utah as early as August 2020. As of November 2020, COVID-19 infections in mink had been reported in Denmark, Italy and the Netherlands, Spain, Sweden and the United States, and China, the world's largest fur farmer, notable by its absence of any reports on coronavirus statistics in humans or any other animals. This prompted the Danish government to announce its intention to cull all mink in the country's mink fur farms, as that could be as many as 17 million individuals. There are 207 mink farms in Jutland that were affected, and at least five cases of a new virus strain were found. The Danish government confirmed 12 people had become infected. Denmark's Prime Minister, Mette Frederiksen, said the mutated virus posed a risk to the effectiveness of the future COVID-19 vaccines. Speaking in 2020, Ms. Fredrickson cited a government report which said the mutated virus had been found to weaken the body's ability to form antibodies, potentially making the current vaccines under development for COVID-19 ineffective. So let's just have a look at the facts of some of these fur farms. In fact, more than 50 million mink a year are bred for their fur, mainly in China, but also Denmark, the Netherlands and Poland. Around the November 2020, outbreaks have been reported in fur farms in the Netherlands, Denmark, Spain, Sweden and the US, and millions of animals have had to be culled. Mink, like other mammal species, are known to be susceptible to coronavirus, and like humans, they can show a range of symptoms from no signs of illness at all to, to, to severe problems such as pneumonia. Mink become infected through catching the virus from humans, but genetic detective work has shown that in a small number of cases, firstly in the Netherlands and now in Denmark, the virus seems to have passed the other way, from mink back to humans. It was revealed that lions and tigers in a New York zoo had also caught COVID-19 from their keepers. The COVID Cluster 5. So Cluster 5 is a name given to a mutated variant of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It was discovered in northern Jutland of Denmark and is believed to have been spread from mink to humans working in mink farms. During November 2020, it was announced that the mink population in Denmark would be culled in order to prevent possible spread of this mutation and reduce the risk of new mutations happening. The World Health Organization stated that Cluster 5 has a moderately decreased sensitivity to neutralizing antibodies. Denmark's State Serum Institute warned that the mutation could reduce the effect of COVID-19 vaccines under development, although it was unlikely to render them useless. COVID-19 Cluster 5 Names and Mutations 
In Denmark, there have been five clusters of mink variants of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The Danish State Serum Institute designated these as clusters 1 to 5. Among these variants, seven different mutations in the spike protein of the virus have been confirmed. The specific mutations mentioned were DEL6970, a deleation of the histidine and valine residues at the 69th and 70th position in the protein, Y453F, a change from tyronazine to phenylalanine at position 453, inside the spike's protein receptor binding domain, and I692V, isoleucine to valine at position 692, and M12291, methionine to isoleucine at position 1229. Cluster 5. COVID-19 originally came from the wild. It was then transmitted to humans and later passed back to a small number of humans. Several different mutations have been discovered within coronavirus in mink that do not arise in humans. But tests found that patient antibodies responded less well to cluster 5 and further laboratory investigations are now being, being carried out. How different is cluster 5 to the more common strain of COVID-19. At first, the scientists thought that the way the virus looks clinically, its severity and its rate of transmission among those infected was similar to that of other circulating SARS-CoV-2 viruses. However, further studies had shown it was a combination of mutations that were not previously observed. Initially, the mink were infected after coming into contact with infected humans. Other animals, including dogs, cats, lions and tigers, have also contracted COVID-19 via respiratory droplets. Mink can act as a reservoir of the SARS-CoV-2, passing the virus between them and pose a risk for virus spillover from mink to humans. As viruses move between human and animal populations, genetic modifications can occur. It's not that surprising that mink have been infected. A list of mammal species infected during the 2003 SARS, which means Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome outbreak, was at least 16, including mink, palm civets, fruit bats, several species of horseshoe bat, red fox, wild boar, raccoon dog, and domestic cats and dogs. Officials in the Netherlands believe mink contracted the illness from farm workers and the farms have since been put into quarantine. The Netherlands stopped the creation of new mink farms back in 2013, but allowed existing farms to continue to trade until a planned closure in 2024. However, Due to the COVID pandemic, the closures were brought forward and all mink farming in the Netherlands stopped at the end of 2020. The World Health Authority, in a statement released on the 6th of November 2020, stated that initial observations suggest that the clinical presentation, severity and transmission among those infected are similar to that of other circulating SARS-CoV-2 viruses. However, 
The Cluster 5 variant has a combination of mutations or changes that have not been previously observed. The implications of the identified changes in this variant are not yet well understood. The UN's findings indicated this mink-associated variant has moderately decreased sensitivity in neutralizing antibodies. The World Health Authority called for further studies to verify the preliminary findings and to understand any potential implications of these findings in terms of diagnostics, therapeutics and vaccines in development. Although the virus is believed to be ancestrally linked to bats, its origin and immediate host of SARS-CoV-2 has yet to be identified. According to the World Health Organization's statement, since June 2020, there have been 214 COVID cases in Denmark with SARS-2 or COVID-19 variants associated with farmed mink. Of those, 12 cases had a unique variant, with all those cases identified during September 2020 in North Jutland, Denmark. The virus was found in Paul aged from 7 to 79 years and 8 had a link to the mink farming industry and mink culls. Denmark ordered the culling of all mink animals in fur farms estimated to have been around 17 and a half million individuals. One in five Danish fur farms have recorded COVID infections in their mink. But this problem isn't new. Back in July 2020, Spain culled around 100,000 mink after cases were detected at a farm in the Aragon province and tens of thousands of animals were slaughtered in the Netherlands following outbreaks in the farms there. The US then confirmed COVID cases in mink farms in Utah in August 2020. Poland also found 18 cases of coronavirus among its mink farm workers, said that around 354 farms containing around 6 million mink could be affected. Ireland's Department of Agriculture informed owners in the three mink farms still operating in Ireland that, that, that their animals would have to be culled to halt any potential spread of the mutated form of COVID-19. The Irish CMS at the time, Dr Hollihan, said the move would be advised as the presence of farmed mink presents an ongoing risk to public health. Dr Hollihan went on to state that all mink should be culled as a matter of urgency. So why should the COVID pandemic bring an end to fur farming? Well, one of the lessons we must learn from COVID-19 is that we cannot carry on pushing animals to the limit of their endurance without serious consequences for both animal and human health. The fur trade had reported turnovers of almost 1 billion US dollars in the years 2018 to 19. Furs are sold to the garland industry, but also used in a vast array of products, including some false eyelash products. China and Hong Kong are the largest markets. Coronavirus outbreaks have already spelled the end of the mink industry in the Netherlands. In here in the UK and in Austria, fur production was banned many years ago. Germany has phased it out and Belgium, France and Norway are also in the process of banning fur farming for good. 
Now is the time for countries such as Denmark, Poland, the USA and China to end this horrific trade in animals, furs and pelts. The appalling conditions and lack of space that these animals are forced to live in, the mutations of their coat colours that they endure through breeding and barbaric execution methods, such as inserting an electrical probe into the anus so as to avoid damaging the pelt, have no place in any civilised society. We do not need to wear fur. We have many alternatives that look and perform equal to or even better than fur. It seems odd to me that wearing the fur of a dead animal could ever be considered as glamorous. Now that fur farming has stopped and no longer has live animals, this is the time to end the fur trade for good. In addition to the animal suffering, the potential for disease spread is another reason for all fashion fat companies to go fur free and to do it now. That's have your say on the Wildlife Matters podcast. If there's anything you'd like to get off your chest and have a say and share with our audience, then please do contact us. Our email address is hello at wildlife-matters.org.uk. And on today's Wildlife Matters podcast, we're going to be looking at the origins of Christmas and some of the traditions that remind us that our lives are inextricably linked with nature and the cyclical rhythms of the natural world. Many of the things we associate with Christmas are rooted in pagan tradition. In our busy modern world, the relatively simple pagan life is generally misunderstood. For example, the term pagan came from the Christians and was used to describe anyone that wasn't a Christian, which at that time was most of us. Christianity maintains many of the pagan traditions, so let's take a look at some of them and see how many you recognise. The winter solstice is the origin of Christmas. The solstice was a time of celebration for the Romans, Celts, Norse and Druids amongst others. They all held big celebrations around the winter solstice. And for us living in the Northern Hemisphere, winter solstice is the shortest day of the year and falls around the 21st of December. And that is why Christmas is celebrated in late December, the same time as many existing pagan holidays. The winter solstice was a huge part of pagan life, just as Christmas is for us today. Pagans were primarily agricultural people and winter marked the end of harvest and the toiling in the fields and the solstice was an opportunity to enjoy the company of their loved ones and to feast and be merry. Winter in the Northern Hemisphere is a dark, cold and often hungry period when people's spirits could easily drop so the winter solstice celebrations helped to keep people entertained and enjoying themselves while they worked to prepare their land before the spring solstice that would see the sunshine come around once again. The Romans celebrated Saturnalia between the 17th and the 24th of December. This was in honour of Saturn, the Roman god of agriculture. The Romans would spend the week of Saturnalia by feasting, drinking, giving gifts and just being joyful. But unlike us, the Romans exchanged only small gifts for good luck. They believed that this would bring in a bountiful harvest the following year. 
So, what about the big man himself? Well, he was known as St Nicholas, the patron saint of children, the poor, and prostitutes. And who knew that? St Nicholas lived in the 4th century AD. He was a bishop who was known for giving gifts to the poor. The legend describes St Nicholas as having a large beard and he wore a long cloak. But even before him, St Nicholas, there was Odin, a god worshipped by the early Germanic tribes. The legend says Odin was an older man with a long white beard. It also says Odin would ride through the night skies with his eight-legged horse called Schlipnir. The story goes that children would fill their boots with straw and carrots and leave them on the roof for Schlipnir to feed on. Odin would then reward the children by leaving them small presents in their boots. The Santa Claus we recognise today is clearly based on the traditions of St Nicholas, Odin and Schlipnir, but he's a far more modern creation than that. Today's Father Christmas was born not from myth and legend, but instead directly from the marketing department of Coca-Cola, whose white-bearded, barrel-bellied character clad all in red was the star of 1930s America. Wildlife and nature, though, is inextricably linked to our Christmas celebrations. So let's take a look at some of the species that have become a part of all of our Christmases. Starting off with the robin, robins are found in many gardens and parks. They're a firm favourite of many people. They are easy to spot, inquisitive and have a loud song that they sing from prominent perches throughout the winter. Both males and females have the distinctive red breast feathers. Robins are very territorial, defending their patch vigorously, except during the breeding season, when a male will let the female into his territory to build a nest. Both sexes travel extensively throughout December in search of a mate and are therefore much more visible to us. There are many stories about how robins became associated with Christmas, but our favourite is that the Torium host workers who wore bright red tunics were nicknamed Robin Redbreasts. So it's no coincidence then that robins began appearing on Christmas cards during the Victorian times. Reindeer are a big part of the Christmas story today, but they're relative newbies to, the, to it. They did feature in Clement Clark Moore's poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Yet the most famous reindeer of them all, Rudolph, only became a part of Christmas in 1939 when Robert L. May, a department store worker, wrote a Christmas story mainly to help increase sales in his store. Donkeys, on the other hand, were depicted in the, in the nativity scenes and are one of the original animals of Christmas. A popular myth is that the cross on a donkey's back is a reminder that the donkey carried Jesus to the manger in Bethlehem. Donkeys have their very own Christmas song, Little Donkey, and talking of songs, swans feature in the 12 days of Christmas. Mute swans are resident in the UK and can be seen in virtually every county all year round. But other species of swans, such as Berwick, migrate here for winter. Amazingly, almost all the hooper swans from Iceland migrate to the UK and Ireland every year. 
One of the easier ways to identify swan species is by the colour of their bills. The native mute swans have orange bills, whilst the winter migrant hoopers' bills are yellow. Another bird that features in the 12 days of Christmas is the partridge, that becomes the first gift of Christmas in the pear tree. This song is about gifts given by a true love. However, it is claimed that the true love mentioned in the song is said to represent God, whilst the partridge in the pear tree represents Jesus. Like the partridge, turtle doves also have a religious connection. The, tur the two turtle doves signify in the Old and the New Testament. Doves are often seen as symbols of peace, love and loyalty. Of course, it's not only fauna that has become part of Christmas for us. Flora features extensively too. Mistletoe was a symbol of love and friendship in ancient Norse mythology. In Britain, perhaps influenced by the Norse tradition, a custom of kissing under the mistletoe developed, with a berry picked from the sprig before a kiss. When all the berries were gone, there could be no more kissing. The reputation of, re of mistletoe as a romantic plant, though, is a little surprising. There is little romance in real life, as this is a parasitic plant, amazing as they are. Mistletoe attaches itself to a tree and then grows out of a branch, living off the tree's food and resources. Mistletoe is toxic to us, but like hollyberries, it makes a great source of food for some of our wildlife. Something mistletoe has in common with holly is that they are both dioecious, which means that they have distinct male and female plants. Only the female plants have the berries. Even the name mistletoe translates from, its, from the Anglo-Saxon as poo on a stick. Mistle meaning dung and tan meaning twig or stick. Seeds are spread by birds ingesting the fruit and fertilised by the birds then pooing on the trees. Holly is found in a variety of habitats from woodland to gardens. Holly, or more precisely its berries, provide an important food source for many birds, including red wings and field fares. In pagan Britain, holly was used traditionally at winter solstice to ward off evil spirits and celebrate new growth. So how did the correlation between mistletoe and kissing start? The tradition goes all the way back to the pagans. The Romans, Celts, Druids and Norse all had a thing about mistletoe too. It was considered to be a highly sacred plant involved in several pagan rituals in the Roman world, mistletoe honoured the god Saturn. And to keep him happy, the Romans would perform fertility rituals underneath sprigs of mistletoe. And yes, that is exactly what it sounds like. One myth I really enjoy comes from the Druids, where mistletoe symbolised peace and joy. In times of war, if enemies met underneath a woodland mistletoe, they would drop their weapons and form a truce until the next day. The Christmas tree. Well, over the years, the evergreen fir has become a tree of choice for people to celebrate Christmas. Christians saw it as a sign of everlasting life, while the Romans used firs to decorate their temples at the festival of Saturnalia. Pagans used to bring branches to decorate their homes during the winter solstice as a symbol of the spring to come. 
Across many parts of Northern Europe, cherry or hawthorn were used as Christmas tree plants. Plants were put into pots and bought it inside in the hope that they would flower at Christmas. Some people in the UK prefer our native Scots pine. It is a majestic tree that can live for centuries. It's mostly found in the Caledonian forest. Scots pine supports an incredible array of wildlife, including red squirrels, capercaillie and crested tits. There are also numerous insects which make their homes amongst the Caledonian pine woods. The decorating of the Christmas tree. The Romans were, are believed to be the first to decorate their trees. It's one of a number of traditions, including feasting, drinking and exchanging gifts during Saturnalia. The Romans also hung small metal ornaments on trees outside their homes. Each of these little ornaments represented a god, either Saturn or the family's personal patron saint. Early Germanic tribes also decorated their trees, this time with fruits and candles to honour the god Odin throughout the winter solstice. In some countries, such as Poland, Finland and Denmark, it is a tradition to celebrate animals at Christmas by giving them gifts. In Poland, when families share a traditional sweet biscuit, they will break some off to share with their animals. As the legend goes, sharing the food will enable the animals to talk at midnight. In Denmark, it is a tradition to walk in the woods to feed the birds and other animals at Christmas time, and in Finland, they hang food on the trees for the wildlife. So that's just some of the many things that are associated with Christmas. And Christmas is a time for family and friends, but for many, it's a time of loneliness or pressure from the expectations of others. One thing we can all depend on and rely on though is nature. Whatever your plans this Christmas, make time to get out and enjoy being in nature. time to sit back and enjoy a mindful moment in nature and this is a very appropriate one for our christmas podcast let's see if you can recognize the bird concerned As our Christmas episode draws towards its close, as does the year, we're looking forward to a really exciting 2023 here at the Wildlife Matters podcast. And we will be back in early January with a fascinating episode where we'll be looking at mycelium and, it, and the impact that it has on just everything on our planet. It really is going to be a good one. Feature length episodes, so do have a listen out for that. Of course, we're going to bring you all the latest nature news and we would love you to have your say. If you'd like to do that, then do get in contact with us. Our email address is hello at wildlife-matters.org. Or, of course, you can go to our website, which is www.wildlife.org 
wildlife-matters.org. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then we would love you to go tell some somebody about it, share it with your friends and family over the Christmas period. Let's get some more people on board. And if you'd like to support the creativity and work we're doing in trying to build a community for the benefit of wildlife here in the UK, but also around the world, then have a look on our website. We have an, a new Patreon link on there, or you could just buy us a coffee, all of which really goes to help us keep this show free to you forever, which is our intention. So we would like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Thank you very much for listening to us through our first few episodes. We hope you continue for the rest of this series and the many more to come. But for now, that's me, Nigel Palmer, your host, signing off. Merry Christmas. See you in 2023, guys.